Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Welcome, welcome to... Recording in progress. There we go. Welcome to Daily Power Parsha, Peachy Parsha, for Monday, October 25th. Let's welcome our in-person crew, which includes Donna, Mike, Sandrine, and Mark. Let's welcome our online crew, which includes Ray, Joy, Charna, Olia, and Sarah. Welcome. Good to see you all. It is awesome to have you all here together. We're all studying together. The power of technology, the power of Torah. Okay, so new Torah portion this week. We did Bereshis, we did Noach, we did Lech Lecha, we did Vayera, and now we're up to Chayisar. So open up the in-person crew. Please open up your Chumash. I'll tell you what page it's on in a moment. It's going to be 132, 133. Yeah, 132, 133. The online, I got you covered. We're going to pull it up, and you'll have it on your screen. Now, we have a bit of a different translation between the two, but it's fine. We'll make it work. Um, I'll kind of reconcile it, say a little bit of each, so that we're all on the same page. Okay, I'm going to share my screen so that you guys can see it, and we're going to jump in. Okay, this is Genesis chapter 23, verse number 1. So we're, get, we're getting involved. We've covered 22 chapters already of Genesis. Now let's jump in. Chaye Sarah, by the way, the meaning of the name of the portion, Chaye Sarah, means the life or life of Sarah. And it talks about her passing. We'll talk about that, that interesting paradox, seemingly paradox in a moment. But let's read it inside. The life of Sarah. Sarah's lifetime was a total of 100 years and 20 years and 7 years. The years of Sarah's life were all equally good, or these were the years of Sarah. Of Sarah. So the Torah tells us how old she was. 127 years old. And then what happens? What happens at the age of 127? Verse number 2. Sarah died. Sarah passes away in Kiryat Arba, which is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham, Avram, came from Be'er Sheva. Let's uh, skip that parenthesis in the, in the Chumash. Avram came to eulogize Sarah and to weep over her. So the Torah tells us about the passing of Sarah's, uh, sorry, of, of Avram's life partner, which is Sarah. And um, what's interesting is that the Torah talks about her life and her passing. It kind of summarizes her life as being 100 years, 20 years, and 7 years. The commentators are wondering, why does it have the word years in between? You would typically say 127 years. So why 100 years and 20 years and 7 years? That seems a little bit redundant, right? Rashi talks about, yeah, we'll get to Rashi in a second. Good. Um, and then it talks about her passing, right? Sarah dies. She passes away. Rashi also points out there about her death that it was right after the binding of Isaac. It was the news of Isaac's binding that ultimately brought about her passing. So typically it's understood that the shock of hearing that her son was brought as an offering before she heard the news that he wasn't actually killed, but the fact her, her son was brought as an offering, that shocked her and, and, and did her in. Rabbi? Yeah. Uh, wasn't it the giant Og that gave her that message that he could see from wherever? 
That's a really good question. Is the giant og involved in this one as well? He always somehow is involved. Every time we need someone to like, well, who said that? Who did that? It's always our jolly green giant og. Is that him here? I don't know. I, for some reason, I don't recall that. It's possible. I'm not saying no. It's possible. But I don't see it here in Rashi. Um, we would have to look up. We would have to look up. Um, the original, one second. No. Um, yeah, Rashi mentions it, and it's coming from probably a Midrash. Probably, yes. Hold on. A person reported to Sarah that her son had been prepared for slaughter. Was it Og? I don't know. Supposedly, yes. Could be, could be. We can't rule him out as a, we cannot rule him out as a suspect. Let's put it that way. We cannot rule him out as a suspect. But didn't they tell her age? They, well, hold on. Donna has a question. Weren't they living in proximity? The answer is yes, absolutely. But remember, Abraham had taken the son early in the morning on a, on a road trip. And meanwhile, the word gets back to Sarah. I guess before they, before they return, the word comes back because word, tra word travels fast sometimes. Said, oh my gosh, Avram brought him up as, a, as an offering, but she didn't hear the guy finish the rest of the statement, and nothing happened, and she had a heart attack or whatever it is, and she passed away. Okay, so let's do a little Rashi here. We talked about Rashi, but let's, let's show Rashi. And let's do Rashi on the, on the first point that I mentioned about the 100 years, 20 years, and 7 years. So for, this is for our in-person crew. This is, uh, you'll have to trust me on this. I'm going to read, you have Rashi here in the, in the original Hebrew. Um, I'm going to read it from the online version, which is in, translated in English. And so you guys can listen or even follow with the Hebrew if that's comfortable for you. All right, so Rashi says, the reason that the word years was written after every digit is to tell you that every digit is to be expounded upon individually. When she was 100 years old, she was like a 20-year-old regarding sin, which means, you know, a 20-year-old is... Maybe today it's different, but 20-year-old means, <laughs> regarding sin, it's like, whoa, a college? No, what it means in that context is 20, um, it says that a person is not held liable, even though bar, bar and bat mitzvah is when we're responsible for Torah and mitzvot, there's no liability of punishment until the age of 20. Because the age of 20 is, you know, we, there's an understanding of punishment not, not kicking in. Probably because of brain, I, in a modern lens, we would say that the, the maturity, the brain development is just not there. You know that the brain is still developing for those years, and to hold to punish someone in a way that's you know irreversible, let's say up to that point would be can't do that. Men Even and women? yes, 20, yes, twenty, same age. Yeah, yeah. It's not nineteen twenty. It's twenty. By At least death, as far as I. But Barba Mitzvah is the. Yeah. I guess it. I guess it evens out at some point. But I'll tell you something interesting. The Supreme Court a few years ago said that any, any um, juvenile convicted of a capital crime, or sorry, convicted of a crime that, and, and got a, any juvenile that was convicted of a crime and received the sentence of life imprisonment without parole, yeah, is unconstitutional. Supreme Court ruled that a few years ago. That any life without parole for a crime committed by a juvenile under whatever age, I guess under 18, 
is, um, is unconstitutional. The fact that you would say that they are so hardened as a criminal at the age of 17 or 16 or 15 to the point that they can never be reformed. Because life without parole means that we don't believe that they can ever be fixed. Be fixed. They can never change. We believe like no chance. Just because parole is a possibility doesn't mean that they're going to get parole. But life without parole means that we don't believe in, in any chance of reform. That, that to be able to say that about somebody when what they did was under the age when the, develop, when the brain fully developed, the Supreme Court said, it's just not, you can't do that. You can't say that. Doesn't mean you have to let everyone out. No one said that. But you have to give them the possibility of parole, of at least a hearing, a parole hearing, if they were under 18 when they committed the crime, with the understanding that the brain has not yet developed. I think that it's interesting that Torah is way ahead of its time. Once again, Torah, Torah says you don't punish until 20. Because, yes, you're held responsible, and there might be other forms of penalty, but you can't physically punish or other forms of punishment until the age of 20. Yeah. What is Mizrahi? Mizrahi is a commentary on Rashi. Because what it says, it says the heavenly court does not hold one responsible for sin until the age of 20. But then it goes on to say in his commentary, uh, Rashi states that before the giving of the Torah, the heavenly court did not hold one responsible for sin until the age of 100. Interesting. So till 100 before signing. That's a lot of time. That's a lot of time. That's a lot. That's a big window. Before the giving of the Torah. Right. Okay. So anyway, so the Torah says that 100 was like 20. She was pure of sin. And let's continue. Rashi says... And just as a um, just as a twenty year old does not sin because she's not liable to punishment, so too when she was one hundred she was without sin, and when she was twenty she was like a seven year old as regards to beauty. In other words, that uh, that innocence, that beauty, not you know, not the beauty that we would consider of a twenty year old as of a seven year old. Obviously, not saying on that level, but the idea of that freshness of uh, of beauty she had throughout her life. Bottom line is the Torah is telling us about her life because it's trying to tell us that she passes away. She passed away, and she passed away in a place called Kiryat Arba. Kiryat Arba, which is Hebron. Hebron. So this will become very significant as we will see in this story. Um, verse number three. The Torah tells us what happens next after Sarah's passing. It says that Abraham, verse three. Abraham, yeah, on page 135 in the Chumash. And Abraham, Avram, got up from, before his death, from his deceased wife, and he spoke to the people, to the sons of Ches, of Heth, in, in, the, in the English here, in, in the computer, saying the following. Uh, he said, I am a stranger. I am an immigrant and a resident among you. Let me have some land for a burial. Give me some property with you so that I may, bear, so that I may bury my dead from in front of me or from before me. So, so Avram, Abraham asks for land to bury his wife. His wife has passed away. He's living in a foreign land. I mean, it's not his land yet. It's his children's land, but not yet, not his. So he wants to have some land to, to lay his wife to rest. Verse number five. The people of Chet, the children of Chet, answered Avram and said to him the following, Listen to us. Listen to us, sir. Listen to us, my lord. You are a prince of God in our midst. You may bury your dad in the choicest of our burial places. You can find the best place and bury her, bury your wife. No, none of us, not one of us will hold back his burial place from you to bury your dad. 
Uh, no one's going to get in the way. You bury your wife. The best, the best plot. Okay, let's continue. Verse 7. Avram got up. He rose and prostrated himself. He bowed down to the people of the land, to the people of Chet, or Ches. Let's continue verse 8. So he was so overwhelmed. Let me just explain why he prostrated himself. Why, why did he bow down? He was so overwhelmed by the kindness that they had shown to him to offer him, you know, he, he's got to bury his wife. It's a mitzvah. Mitzvah burial. His, his wife has passed away. She's there. What do you, what? He doesn't have any lamb yet. So he, he asked them. They said yes. And he was very, he was very grateful. Verse number 8. So Avram spoke with them. He said to them the following, If you wish me to bury my dad from in front of me, listen to me. And ask Ephron the son of Tzohar to give me his cave of Machpelah. In other words, you offered me land. I, w- I have a specific place in mind. I want the cave of Machpelah. The double cave. Machpelah means double. The double cave which is at the end of his field. It belongs to him. It's at the end of his field. So I want this land, not just any land. I want the land that belongs to this guy named Ephron, the son of Tzohar. I want his, I want his land. Let him give it to me for its full price as land for a burial plot in your midst. I will pay a full price. So Avram says, thank you for your generosity. I want a certain, ple- a certain uh, piece of land, a certain place, and I'm willing to pay for it. Uh, Negotiate. Yeah. Again, that doesn't give credence, you know, to the stereotype that we always trying to get a, you know, what I mean? trying to get a deal. Yeah. Right. Avram wasn't uh, trying to get a deal here, right. saying, "Hey, give it to me for." Yeah, he was willing to pay, and he said, "Full price. Give me retail." You can even ask a question on this. Was he even Jewish? Was Avram Jewish? He's paying retail. Who pays retail? Hmm. What kind of Jew pays retail? The first Jew paid retail. I don't know. A business mind, you pay wholesale, you sell it at retail. What is this? Anyway, bottom line is he's, he's ready to pay for it uh, to get the specific piece of land. Now, why did he want this specific land, this specific cave? Why, and why was it called the cave of Machbelo, the double cave? Well, Rashi here fills us in. I'm not going to read it inside, but I'll tell you the gist of it. Basically, Avram knew, Abraham knew from a tradition, an ancient tradition, that there were some pretty special people that were buried already in that cave, including Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were buried there, and Abraham knew this. And Abraham said, if there's any place for my wife to be buried, it's next to Adam and Eve. I mean, that's the place. that we got to go there. There's a tremendous video I believe that I saw. I believe that I saw this video, and it wasn't another video. Yeah, a video that that was that, that somebody filmed recently in the last few years with the cave Machpelah, and it has tunnels and chambers in the area of where Adam and Eve are buried, and Abraham and Sarah, because they're they're eventually buried there. I don't want to spoiler alert. He gets the land, but yeah, it's like it's 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 beautiful. It's, it's also so that Adam and Eve, I guess, started there, and then all the journeys of Noah and Abraham, and it end up in the same place. They end up back, yeah. They, the, the, the journey began there in that area. Adam and Eve were laid to rest there. And they traveled around and then kind of rebuilt around that area. Yeah, the Holy Land. 
So Abraham knew this. And when, we, when he was asking for the, for the place to bury, bury his wife, he first asked generally, can I have a place in your land? They said, yes, good. Step one hurdle, done. Step two, can I have this land? I'm willing to pay for it. Okay. I have a question. Yes. So why do we bury people below the ground? Why do we bury them below the ground? Because the cave is like a, uh, what do you call these things, like graveyards where people actually are buried. Like Mausoleum. Mausoleum, yeah. Right. So Mark is asking, one second, are we supposed to bury underground or above ground? The answer is below ground. But now you're asking, but they were buried in a cave. What does that mean? The cave, as Rashi also says, was a cave on top of a cave, which means they were really buried in the underground chamber that had also an above-ground situation. So it's interesting that the video that I mentioned before, if you Google it, you might be able to find it. I'm sure it's on YouTube somewhere. A video of uh, behind the scenes in the cave of Machpelah in, in Hebron. There's a chamber that says Adam and Eve. But that's not where they really are. They're really under. They're really in that same area, but a few layers yeah. under. A few layers under, yeah. But they still are in the ground. They're in the ground. Well, it's the cave. Oh, you're saying the cave means that it's a chamber, but yeah. it's not actually in? Right. Maybe it's under the cave. Underground cave. Underground cave. Or, or no, or, or under the cave. It's the, the floor of the cave, under the cave. That's my understanding. I don't think they were put on a shelf, <laughs> if that's what you're asking. Um, which is a mausoleum, right? Yeah. They, they, yeah. Up on the shelf, yeah. Well, not the owl, but the, <laughs> <laughs> the patriarch and matriarch. Yeah. <laughs> not such an elf. All right, so what's the point? He's gunning for this, for this specific cave. He wants this Machpelah cave. All right, and he wants it from this guy named Ephron who owns the cave. He doesn't even know. Ephron doesn't know who's there. He doesn't know about Adam and Eve being there. Abraham knows. He's trying to get it. Now, you might ask a, a moral question. Do you, should you disclose this information? Ethically, morally, right? Shouldn't you tell, like, if something has a value that you know about, is it ethical to, you know, and they're unaware of it, is it ethical to, like, get it at a, good, at a, at a regular price when you know it has this hidden value? That we'll have to say for another class. I know I opened up a conversation, but not for right now. It's a comp it's a not an easy yeah, it's, it's not, not an easy, easy topic. It's not an easy topic. It's a complicated topic. It's a very intriguing conversation. Like if you know, if you're at a garage sale and you can spot a Picasso, but they have no idea, right? And they're selling it for ten bucks, can you ethically buy it, pay ten dollars, and walk away with it? You might say, yes, they, they sold a few for 10 but they didn't know what they were selling. Does that, so is it a mekachtos? Mekachtos means a, a mistaken sale. If somebody doesn't know what they're selling, then maybe it's not a sale. It works the, it works the reverse, right? If somebody, if you thought you were buying a Picasso and it turns out to be a fake, you would for sure be able to demand back the money because you paid 10000 a million, more than $10,000, whatever. You paid $10 million for this painting and it's a fraud, of course you're going to go back. So why doesn't it work in reverse, right? Because you should have known. Well, you should have known, right? If it works one way, you should have known what you were selling, then you should know what you're buying. If it doesn't work one way, it should not work the other way. Does that make sense? Yep. So really the question is, should Avram have been full disclosure, should she have like, fully disclosed who was buried there? Again, it's a bigger conversation. I don't necessarily have a good answer for it, but that's another conversation. Next. Did he know then, Rabbi, did he know 
I mean, it says that he was, that the name was prophetically given because of the couples that would be buried there, but did right. he know, did he know all who would be buried there? That's the question. Did Abraham know or he just kind of guessed? He liked the cave. Turns out that we know that Adam and Eve were buried there. My understanding, yes. my understanding is that he knew. Now, that, that could be wrong. I could be misremembering. My, my, my belief is that according to the Medrash or the Talmud, according to our sources, that he did know, at least according to some sources, he did know about Adam and Eve being buried there. That's my recollection. It says that the name was given prophetically because four illustrious couples would be buried there. Right. Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Leah. Right. Right, right, right. So you're saying maybe he had no idea. I'm with you. I'm with you. But I, I still think there's a source that says no. that you have a different source? No, the straight translation. Yeah. The straight translation says, uh, you are a prince of God in our midst. In the choicest of our burial places, bury your dead. So he's already calling it a burial place. Right. He's not calling it in the choices of our caves. Right. In the choices of our burial places. Oh, so Mark is saying they even call it a burial place. Yeah. So it seems like it was known that it was a burial place on some level. Okay. All right. We'll leave this up to, we have to go to the, honestly, the, we, we, should, we really need to look at the original Midrashim, which I don't have open in front of me. So we'll have to put that on hold. But here's, here's what we do know. Avram wants this land for his wife, for burial spot, and he's willing to pay for it. So, but it's owned by Ephron. Turns out Ephron, the guy, is sitting there. He's, he's amongst the people that Avram is speaking to and negotiating with. All right, that's verse number 10. Let's jump in. All right, so due to Avram's importance, Ephron sat in a high position among the people of Ches. So Ephron was sitting as a, as, a, as a ruler, as a leader, as a judge, who knows whatever he was. He was, a, they say in Yiddish, a big macher. He's a big macher. Um, let's continue. Um, and they all had stopped work One second. As Rash, this is Rashi interposed um, amidst the translation, all the people of Ches had stopped work and come to the gate of the city in honor of Sarah. So I guess because they heard she passed away, so everyone took off a day from work and they all gathered around in the, uh, the gate of the city. And he says the following. He says the following. Verse 11. No, my Lord. No, sir. I will not accept your money, Ephron says. I'm not taking your money. Listen to me. Listen to me. I've given you the field and I've given you the cave which is in it. I've given it to you in the presence of my people to bury your dead. Okay, I know I did a little bit of a different translation than, than the online, but it's the same idea. He says, I'm giving you the field. I'm giving you the cave. I'm giving it in front of all these witnesses. It's done. You can now bury your wife. So he basically says, Avram says, I'll pay you for it. And Ephron, who's there, says, you don't have to pay me. Take it. Take it. Okay. Verse 12. And what happens hearing this news? He once again bows down. And Avram threw himself to the ground in front of the local people. He bows down to the people of the land. Verse 13. He continues. He spoke to Ephron in front of the gathered audience of the local people, and he said the following. But if only you would listen to me. I have the money ready for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. Thank you for the offer. I appreciate your generosity of giving it for, to me for free. But I want to give you money for it. If, just listen to me. I want to pay you for it. Don't turn down my money. Again, is he Jewish? 
I don't know, he just got a free offer. And now he's like, no, I want to pay for it, and I want to pay full price. Okay? So Ephron responds, Ephron replied to Avram, the following verse 14. And he said, Listen to me, my lord, sir, listen to me. What is a piece of land worth? 400 shekels of silver between friends like me and you? Forget about the money and bury your dead. He says, what are you going to worry about the money, the 400 pieces of silver? He drops the price. You with me? He throws the price in. He says, you, Avram's, he says, I'll give it to you for free. Avram says, I'll pay you for it. He says, what, you want to give me 400, shekels, 400 silver coins for it? You don't have to. But he just said his price. He just said his price, 400 silver shekel. In the context of saying, why, why do you have to pay me the price for it? He throws the price in there. What, you want to give me 400 shekel? And the answer is he wanted it, and, he gave, and Avram gave it to him, and that's how much he gave it to him. So let's continue. Avram, verse 15. 16, sorry. Avram listened to Ephron. He listened between the lines, right? Above the lines, he said, don't, I, don't, I don't need any money. But between the lines, he said, I want 400 silver shekels. So Avram listened to Ephron, and he weighed out to Ephron the amount of silver that he had mentioned in the presence of the people of Ches, 400 shekels of silver in standard currency, and he accepted it. He gave it to, he gave it to uh, Ephron. So what's the point? Avram buys the field and the cave of Machpelah from the owner, from a man named Ephron, for how much? 400 silver shekels. 400 shekels of silver accepted by the merchant. This is like, there are different silver shekels. Let me explain. Shekel was the name of like a coin, but there were different shekels. Some coins were accepted only in some places, not other places. But then there were the silver shekels, then there were the shekels that were accepted everywhere. It's like you might say local currencies versus, well, the dollar. The dollar is used, is used in many countries or is accepted in many countries, whereas other denominations might not, you can't really spend. I mean, what, if you go to France, can you spend the dollar in France? You can't really spend the dollar, right? No one's accepting it. Not really. The street, yeah. Where all the tourists no, are. By the Eiffel Tower. By the Eiffel Tower, maybe they'll take your dollars. No, all right. You can have the dollar as the Mexican, you know, of pesos. Pesos, and right. In South America, you know, sometimes you have the dollar that has, it's also called dollar, but it has a different. Right. Uh, so in other countries, you'll, right. So, okay, so here's the deal. You have different currencies, and some currencies are only regional, local. But certain currencies hold their value in many places. What do you have? Yeah. In Rashi... We're getting Rashi's brewing. Yeah. Uh, he says um, they are contrarine, which are... Santanaris. And Santanaris says that means 100. Oh, interesting. So, oh, like century. Yeah. And in fact, there's a note here. It says, uh, although Shekel the Torah is, is generally a sellah, or sellah, Shekelim, which Abraham gave Ephron, were contrarian, each of which was 100 Salahi. That's interesting. So what's happening here is, what's happening here is, is that um, Avram is giving him not just normal coins, not just regular standard shekels, but like uber shekels. Right. Like shekels that are worth, each, each one is 100 shekels. Each shekel of these shekels, these were like superpowered shekels. These weren't your normal, everyday shekel. These were like the shekel of all shekels, the shekel to end all shekels. The shekels, you would shuckle with that shekel, maybe. 
Each shekel is worth 100 shekels. That's a lot of shekels. What's 100 times 400? 40,000? 40,000 normal shekels. So Avram, yeah. Yeah, Ray. It says that Abraham paid a total of one million ordinary shekels for the cave. One million. The shekel that he used to pay was worth 2,500 ordinary shekels. That's according to Rashi. See, Ray's got another count. 2,500. Ray's a Rashi. Huh? And, and it yeah. ended up being a total of one million ordinary shekels. One million shekels. So we either it's 40,000 or a million either way. It's a lot of Fahrenheit. It's a lot of shekel. The point is that it went from being a free offer to being a lot of money, to being a lot of money for that cave. But what's interesting is that Avram paid it and he wanted to pay it. The Rebbe says, why did he want to pay it? He got a free offer. Why would he want to pay it? The answer is because Avram wanted to own a piece of the land, not just get a gift, not just get a gift. And you know what a gift is? A gift is, I gave it to you, but I can take it back, sort of, or, huh? Come with us. Oh, yes. Yes, Sandrine says it perfectly. Gifts with a string attached. Yeah, I gave it to you. Don't forget where it came from. Da, 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 da. Right. This is Avram is paying full price. No backsies. No, with the receipt. Yeah, with the receipt. That's it. It's done. It's done, it's done, it's done. One more thing. Yeah. One more thing. Um, also, this could be the beginning of the law because no transaction is complete without consideration. What do you mean consideration? Consideration, exchange of goods. Yes, yes. Whether money for something. Right. You know, that's a legal term for, you know, because it makes the deal complete if you both exchange something. If, if he exchanges the land for nothing, there's no consideration. I love that. I love that. Even in modern terminology or modern concepts of... of, of, of uh, of acquisition, contract law. contract law, thank you for saying the words, right? Contract law, you need to have, right? There needs to be skin in the game on both sides. There needs to be something that's happening. So you can't just take land and then that's what, it's, it doesn't make it yours necessarily. Even if they say it's yours, you got to pay for it. And here he pays full price. What's interesting is also, you know, that God had promised him the land. So ultimately it was going to be his land anyway. But he went out of his way to purchase a piece of the land so that it's not just even from God, it's not just a gift, but it's actually purchased with cash, with a receipt, with a contract, with a deal. What's ironic, and this is, you look through the Torah, you'll find this. All the places that are bought by Jews are all the sites that are the most contested today. It's the irony of the ones that we paid for are the most hotly contested. Hebron, Hebron, Jerusalem, David bought the Temple Mount. I mean, it's, it's in scripture, it's black and white, that it was paid for by Jews. Now you might say, well, that's an old, it's a long time ago. Things change hands. And that's true. But the concept of Jewish purchase being canonized, we don't know who bought the other stuff. But this is black and white in the Bible. And the irony is, it's not so ironic, because you know, the stuff that ha that's the most clear would have the most opposition to try to tear it down. So it's just, that's the way it works. But anyway, it's, uh, Hebron is a site that today is very... Complicated, very complicated. There's a strong air presence around there. There's a, um, there's, if you want to go to Hebron, yeah, either you can't or you have to go in a bu bulletproof uh, situation. Yeah, anybody been to Hebron? No. 
Ray has. Ray, tell us about Hebron. When did you go? Um, many years ago, I went with a group of educators, and um, and we had to wait outside because they were davening inside. And when they came out, uh, then we could go in. Got it. They meaning the the Arabs. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Rabbi, I, I saw something very interesting. Do you know that in the Torah, Ephron's name is spelled with a um, a vav, but then after the sale. The vav is taken out of the name nice. to show that he was diminished. Yeah. As long as he had the cave, he had something. So he's missing a vav. That's great. Missing a vav in his name afterwards. It's beautiful. Nice. Um, it also says that Ephron is the example of somebody who promises big and under delivers. I'll give it to you for free. But if you're paying, I'll take a million dollars for it. I mean, it's like, you know, he's full pricing him. All right. That's the way it is. I mentioned last week that Avram is the opposite. He underpromises to the angels, to the guests. He's like, I'll give you a little f- bread and water. And when they come to his house, oh, f- lavish meal. It's better to underpromise and overdeliver than the opposite. Okay, now let's do the second reading. I love this. Now, because we do always on Mondays, we do two readings to catch up because every day a reading. So we just did Sunday's reading. Now we can do Monday's reading. Okay, number two. Genesis chapter 23, verse number 17, bottom of page 137, or on your screen as is. And so, my friends, the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, facing Mamre, was established as Avram's possession. This included the field and the cave which was in it. Avram bought, again, Torah emphasized a few times, he didn't just buy a cave, the burial spot. He bought the field and the cave. Okay, all the trees and all the trees that were in the field, which were within its entire border around. He bought it all. It became Avram's. It was to Avram as a possession in the presence of the people of Ches, who had come to the gate of his city. In other words, this was a public sale. It wasn't a private deal. Everyone had known and everyone had seen that Avram purchased this cave, the, the field and the cave, to bury his wife. No one could deny that this happened. Everybody was privy. Everybody was a witness to this transaction, to this deal, to this contract, to this, hold on. Joy, what did you say before? This consideration, right? Consideration. Oh, hold on. I realized I didn't share my screen with you. Look at that. Look at me not sharing online. I'm so sorry. Sharing is caring. And I'm caring now. Okay, we just did this first verse over here. Yeah, so Avram, Avram gets the field. Sindrin, what did you say, sorry? Consideration, yeah. Okay, yeah. It's also interesting. I mean, there weren't like a system of roads that I'm going, the field must have been in the middle of someone else's property. I wonder. I don't know yet. Yeah, I wonder how the access to that right. field was. Maybe it was off the road. I don't Yeah. Who knows? Interesting. Good question. I know because you, you think back and it, what did, what did right. land look like back then? Right. Yeah. They used trees and markers like that. Oh, yeah, maybe. Right. <laughs> From the fourth tree to the fifth tree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, verse 18. It was to Avram 
It became Avram's. Oh, we said that already. We'll do it again. As a possession in the presence of the people of Ches, who had come to the gate of the city. Remember, everyone was off from work that day. It was a holiday. Well, it was a day of remembrance for Sarah because she was respected. So no one worked, and they all were there when this transaction occurred. 19. Afterwards, after all this negotiation, all the wheeling and dealing, and all the transfer of cash and transfer of, of ownership, after all this, Avram, Abraham, buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave in the field of Machpelah, facing Mamre, which is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. That's where it is. Verse 20. The field and the cave within it were established to Avram's burial plot, or as a burial property, purchased from the people of Ches, or the sons of Ches. Okay, so that's, what's, that's, that's, uh, that's that narrative. And again, I need to point out what I said before. The Torah portion is called Chaye Sarah, the life of Sarah. And honestly, we just spent a lot of time speaking about her death and the aftermath, finding a place to bury her or purchasing a place to bury her. Why is it called Chaye Sarah, the life of Sarah? And this leads us to a, a beautiful insight that I think will be, for me at least, the theme and the energy of today that I'm going to try to live with. And that is that we sometimes view life with a very narrow focus, like life begins at birth and ends at death, physical death, and that's what life is. But Judaism Torah teaches us a different, a different understanding of life. Life is not what we live in those 120 years that the soul is here on earth. Life is, number one, the soul is always alive, eternally alive. But number two, what we do, what we accomplish, lives on far beyond our physical life. Our legacies live on, please God, beyond the years of our journeys on earth. And so the Torah says, yes, this is indeed the life of Sarah, because although she passes away, her legacy lives on. Her husband is caring for her. The people are respecting her. Her son, as we'll see soon, is finding a wife to carry on the legacy. As her environment, as her children, her neighbors, her community, as they live on, she also lives on. As her memory is remembered, she lives on. Very powerful idea about um, immortality. We think immortality is when they perfect a, uh, you know, a medical procedure, or whatever it is to, to reverse or remove all, all aging, that's immortality. Immortality can happen today. Immortality is living a life of immortality, living an immortal life that inspires others. Okay, now we're up to uh, chapter 24. Rabbi, one second. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, so it says, uh, here, it's, it, this is the standard edition. Yeah. Uh, where before I thought it was Og, here it says she was told by Satan that ah. Abraham had actually slaughtered Isaac and she cried out in grief and passed away. It says Satan, Satan, tells yes. Sarah about the Akedah. Interesting. What's the source? Is it a Medrash? Midrash? Uh, it's the standard edition of... No, but they usually have like a, at the but they usually have at the end of the paragraph a little bit of a source in parentheses. They usually have a parentheses source over there. Whatever, either way. I, it's probably from the Medrash. Alright, don't, don't, uh, don't worry about it. I was, just, I was just curious as to where, where it says that it was Satan and to look that up at some point. Um, okay, alright, if you find it, let us know. If not, we'll move on. Alright, Genesis chapter 24. So after all of this, Sarah has passed away. She's buried, laid to rest, eulogized, mourned, etc. After this, Avram was old. Still immersed in daily life, he, had, he, was, he was living his life. God had blessed Avram with everything, including a son. In fact, 
In fact, in fact, the word bakal, which means everything, is the numerology of ben, which means sun. I want to clarify that. On the Hebrew side, I'm going to highlight it online. If you look in the, in the Hebrew side in the Chumash in front of you for the in-person, one, two, three, four, five, six lines down on page 138. The last word in the line, that means the word all the way toward the left on 138, six lines in, is bakal. Bakal, the numerology is 52. And the word ben is also 52. So when it says that God blessed Avram with everything, what it means is God had blessed him with a son, Isaac. And now that he has a son, and now that he's getting older, what does he need to do? He's got to marry off his son. He's got to make sure his son is married, right? right? Any, any uh, Jewish parent will say, Ay, the kids, they got, right? Got to get a shidduch, got to get married. So let's read that story. So Avram said to his servant, the senior member of his house who was in charge of everything he had. This is Eliezer. Um, Avram says to Eliezer, to Eliezer, please place your hand under my thigh to swear an oath. And I will make you swear, I will adjure you by God, the God of the heavens and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. Let me explain what's going on. Avram wants his son to get married. But he doesn't want him to marry a local girl. Remember, the Canaanites were steeped in idolatry. The land of Canaan was pagan capital of the world, or one of the pagan capitals of the world. Avram wanted his son not to marry a local, wanted to marry somebody from his family that at least he knew them and he was from them and they had some members that had a monotheistic uh, bend to them. So at least they were familiar with the concept because they had an uncle or a cousin or a... Uh, somebody like Abraham in the family, so at least they, you know, Thanksgiving, he was sharing a sure monotheism with them. That was a joke, but anyway. <coughs> so what's the point? The point is that Avram wants his son to marry a girl from back home, from where he's from. Isaac can't leave Israel. As I mentioned last week, I think, once he was brought as an offering, he was elevated as an offering, even though he wasn't slaughtered, thank God, but once he was lifted up, he can't, he no longer leave Israel. He's holy. So how's he going to go to Abraham's family that doesn't live in Israel, Canaan? How's he going to find the girl? So he, that's why Avram talks to his servant, Eliezer, and says, I need you to go there and find the girl, bring her back. That's what it is. So um, I want to make you swear, he says, that you will not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. Rather, verse 4, he says, rather, you, Eliezer, should go to my land, to my birthplace, and you will take a wife from my son for Yitzchak. That's verse 4, right? And I want you to go back to my home, my birthplace. Remember last, uh, two weeks ago, God said to Avram, Lech Lecha, leave your land, your birthplace, your father's house. Now Avram says, time to go back. Only to find a girl from there, but it's time to come back. Uh, time to go back and then uh, bring her here. So the servant says, Eliezer says to him the following. What if the woman will not want to follow me to this land? You make this sound so simple. So just go there, find a girl, bring her back. What if she doesn't want to come back? Like, but that's a random thing. I'm going to say, hey, you look like the perfect girl for my master's son. Come with me. 
super, like super sus, as the kids say, super suspicious. Like, what's going on with that? You come with me, right? I got a guy? Oh, sure, like, who does that? So what if, what if, she, does, what if she will not want to follow me to this land? Shall I take, so let's continue inside, verse 5 in the middle. Shall, I hate to interrupt you, but I've got to ask you this question. Sure. Abraham's father sold idols. So, Correct. So how was his hometown such a pure place? It wasn't right. So Mark is asking, one second, he's saying go back home and you'll find a girl that's monotheistic. Abraham's father, Abraham's father sold idols. So clearly even that place wasn't monotheistic. You're right. But Abraham's family had a little bit of familiarity to monotheism. Even Abraham's father, who used to sell idols, <coughs> after the incident where he was thrown into the furnace, Abraham's father moved with him to get away. He protected his son. He said to Avram, let's go. Let's get out of here. This place is, is not, not friendly. So they moved. And then on the way, his father, father died, and then they just stopped in that place. So what's the original place where he was from? It was a no. It was Haran. Okay. That's where they had traveled. If you look back, let me find that source. The end of the Torah portion of Noah, it says the following. Give me a second. Yeah, it actually says, in the house of my father from Haran. Yeah, but I, I'm going to show you in the Chumash. So if you, because look, look on page 65. What, what is that? Just, what, what? oh, it's, um, sorry. It's um, Genesis 11, 31. Yeah. Thir so look at that last, second to last paragraph where it says, Terach took Avram his son. Terach was the father. Terach took Avram his son, Lot his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, and they went out with them. They left Orkastim. They were originally from Orkastim, but that's where they got thrown into the furnace. They left Orkastim to go to Canaan. They only reached as far as Haran and settled there. But that's where Avram's family, and that's where, that's from Haran is where he was told Lech Lecha to go to Canaan, continue the journey alone without the rest of the family, with Lot. But <clears throat> and now Avram is saying to Eliezer, go back to Haran to get a girl from my family. Why did Terach move from Urkastim? Because he associated with his son. After, after Avram was thrown into the, into the furnace, <coughs> Terach defended his son. And then he became an enemy. So they all left. The whole family left. So they weren't necessarily monotheistic, but they were a monotheistic familiar. There was some sort of you know, friendliness toward it. So Avram says, not from here will be found a wife for my son, but go to my home in Haran and find someone from my place. But again, let's, let's do verse 5 again. But the servant said to him, what if, she will not, what if the woman will not want to follow me to this land? Shall I take your son back to the land from where you came? In other words, what if she says, I'm, I'm not going until I meet this guy. So then should I come back, take Yitzchak, take Isaac, and go to meet her? No. No. Avram said to him, no. Be insistent. And, to, and not to take my son back there. In other words, he does not go out of Israel. He doesn't leave this. He doesn't leave Canaan, the, the future land of Israel. He doesn't leave. God, the God in the heavens, verse 7, 
who took me from my father's house in Haran and from the land of Orkastan where I was born, who spoke to me about my needs and who swore to me at the covenant of the part, saying, I will give this land to your descendants, God, in other words, the God that's hooked me up consistently throughout my life, God who's never let me down, God will send his angel before you, ahead of you, and you will take a wife for my son from there. In other words, God will make sure that you're successful. I do not have a doubt that you'll find the girl, that she'll want to come back here, and all, all will be good. Now you're, listen, Eliezer, the servant, is asking the right questions. He says, look, you're giving me a mission. Go to your old hometown of Haran. Find a girl, bring her back. What if I don't find the girl? What if she doesn't want to come back? Like, What, what do I do? Should I, should I bring Yitzchak there? No. No. Do this. It's going to work out. Believe in God. All right, here we go. Verse number eight. And if the woman really doesn't want to follow you, in other words, if at the end of the day you find someone, but she still says no, like I believe that, that it's not going to be a problem. But if it actually does play out where it is a problem, then you know what? You will be absolved of this oath of mine. In other words, you'll have no more further responsibility. I'm not going to hold it against you if she refuses to come. I won't. <coughs> but don't take my, but whatever you do, don't take my son back there. The servant placed his hand under the thigh of Avram, his master, and made him this oath. He swore to him about this. That was the oath. So he calls his servant, says, promise me that you'll do this mission. But what if it doesn't work? You just do what you need to do. It's going to work. All right, that concludes today's reading, today's double reading, readings one and two. So what's the moral of the story? We have a few of them. Moral of the story number one is, what did I mention before? What was the one that I mentioned before? Um, of uh, keeping the immortality. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah, the life. immortality. Yes, thank you, Sandrine. Message number one is immortality. How do we stay alive? Staying alive. Staying alive. Uh, 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 right. How does Sarah stay alive? Chayisar, the life of Sarah. She passed away. Was she alive? Inspire. Inspire and bring inspiration to others and you'll be alive forever. That's number one. Number two, the idea of doing what we need, what we need to do. Do the mission. You cannot guarantee success. No one can guarantee us success. We can't guarantee ourselves success. But all we need to do is do the work. God says, in this case, Abraham says to Eliezer, don't worry so much about the outcome. It's not in your control. God will provide. I believe God will, if God doesn't provide, that's another story. But have the faith. Number one, believe that God will provide. Recognize that not everything is in our hands. We need siyat deshmaya, help from heaven. And with the effort and the assistance from above, we will please God to be successful. That's the way it works. With a little help from above and a lot of effort, a lot of sweat down here, we'll be successful. All right, these are good. Oh, that joke about, remember? Which one? The future son-in-law. Oh, he's calling his future father-in-law. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. <laughs> he thinks I'm God. I like him already. He thinks I'm God. Right? All right. That's the joke. I'll just share the joke. When did I say that? Recently? Recently, yeah. I think it was Wednesday in my class. Yeah, so you probably heard me say it. Anyway, the guy who has interviewing his future son-in-law. Right? First time he's meeting the guy. His daughter is, uh, fell in love with no, what's, what, what do you do? I don't have a job yet. What do you want to do? I don't know. Who's going to provide? God will provide. Speaks to his wife later. He says, 
This kid doesn't have a clue, but at least he thinks I'm God. <laughs> right? Anyway, it's a joke. But that made me think of, uh, I came up with a joke when I was living in France, and this was before bottled water yeah. was universal. But, so there's an expression in French, on peut vivre de l'amour fraîche, on peut vivre de l'eau fraîche et de l'amour. You can live on fresh water and love. Mm. But you have to buy. I have a different expression that my wife and I always say love and fresh air because air is free until they start bottling air and then we're all in trouble imagine that bottling air they had oxygen bars kind of way yeah I know fresh water could be free yeah. and, and it should be Perrier you got Evian from the source? That's so cool. <laughs> that was not Evian, that was the competitors. Oh, okay. We won't Vital. tell them. Vital. It's a ton of Vital. Nice. It has, you know, but you can go with your. Does it have Vitality? <laughs> Maybe. Vital. V I T T E L. Oh, T E L. Got it. Okay. It started out as like a medicinal. Nice. Right. Right. You put a bottle there, you get fresh water. That's very cool. Not here. Not here in Midtown. Not here in Virginia Highlands. No fresh springs. Although, although um, Ponce Springs, that Ponce de Leon, this area was because there was a springs here. Am I wrong here? Charn, am I right? You're right. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Ponce de Leon. He was looking. He found a youth, baby. He made he made some money off it. Yeah. Um, okay. So again, moral of the story is: live in a mortal life. Live with a higher purpose. Share the gift with others. Share the inspiration. Be immortal. That's message number one. And number two, we got to trust in God. Uh, Eliezer's like, what if, what if, what if? Everyone's like, I, I love you, man. Just just do it. You got this. You, God's got you. And if it doesn't work out, all right, at least you tried. But it's going to work out, right? Always tell yourself, if it doesn't, then, but you got to believe that it's going to work out. And by the way, it works out. I remember teaching this last year from Pittsburgh. You remember this? I was teaching this por- portion about the journey. Not today's. I was in, the, was in a driveway in Pittsburgh, yeah? Anyway, so let's stay plugged in. Let's be successful. Quick announcement for all those that have not seen the dozens of communications about it. Tomorrow night begins our brand new course called Outsmarting Anti-Semitism. Tomorrow night and Thursday. So Tuesday night at 8 online on Zoom and Thursday at noon in person with lunch. We can't do Zoom lunch because it gets a little bit tricky to feed the food through the computer. Um, Is it going to be here? It's going to be the t- Thursday. Oh, that's a good question. And Thursday day. Out, yeah, Thursday day is probably up here. I would say Thursday day would be up here. Can we spread out? Yeah, I'll speak to my guys, see what we can do. Tuesday night will be on Zoom. Outsmarting anti-Semitism. This is very different than any other conversation on anti-Semitism. The focus will not be on the hate and how bad things are. The focus will be on what we can do about it. Combating anti-Semitism with pride and with strength, standing tall, and tried and true Jewish um, responses to anti-Semitism. 
doesn't seem like it's going away, what can we do about it? What can we, how do we deal with it? What do we do about it? That is the nature, that's the purpose of this course. Join me. You're going to love it. Okay. That's it for today. All right. Thank you, guys. Ray, Joy, Charna, Olia, and Sarah. Great to see you guys. Yes. Yom Tov. Yes, Ray. And I think what you're looking for is Targum Yonasan. It's in parentheses after. Could be. Could be. Yes. Yes. Thank you. I'm gonna. I'm gonna look at that. Amazing. All right. Thank you. We'll see you soon. Thank you, Rabbi. Pleasure, Sarah. Great to see you. Thank you. Take care, guys. All right. Have a great day. Yes, Ray, jump in. It's about um, it's about the class. It uh, about um, Bluma. Did she pay, or am I paying for her? Oh, I saw your message. Yeah, no, she did not pay. I, should I put? Should I run it for you? It, yes. So I'll give her my book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and you'll get me one. I'm gonna send you another one. Okay. I'll send you another one. And then I'll give her mine. Okay? Yes. I'll send you another one to your address. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll do, I'll do it now. I forgot to do it before. The bar mitzvah and everything. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. We'll see you guys. Take care. All right.